We're about ready to start. The only uh, announcement that I'm really aware of is that on um, July 1st, we're going to have covered dish dinner and uh, prayer time for our nation. So make sure you have that on your calendar. Uh, I'll be leaving next Monday, so don't take Sunday off because you think the pastor's out of town. Gee, you do that? Yes. Uh, I'll be here Sunday. Jim Myers will be here next Tuesday and Thursday night, so we want to make sure there's a good attendance on Tuesday and Thursday night. Jim got in this afternoon. He was supposed to have gotten in this afternoon. I haven't heard otherwise, and I'm assuming he did arrive, and I'm not going to bother him because he'll be jet-lagged. But they'll be here. So he'll be teaching class next Tuesday and Thursday night. Then Taylor Williams will be here the two Sundays that I'm gone. And then the second week that I'm gone and the next Tuesday will be uh, uh, continuing the uh, important series in Jude. So that's what happens. And I'll be back on the uh, Thursday night, the 28th. I will be back here groggy or not, awake or not. We'll see what, what happens. But uh, we'll, we'll send in a few reports and some pictures here and there as we, um, as we go on the trip. But be, please be in prayer for us, and especially some of the details in the next four or five days as we get ready to leave because there's always little things that still have to be dealt with and a couple little brush fires that need to be put out. And so we need to, uh, prayer is probably the most important thing to get those brush fires out, more important than anything else. So we can pray for those things. And I'm not aware of anything else in terms of announcements. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we need to be in fellowship with God, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit for anything in our life to have spiritual value. So if we have uh, any known sin, we need to confess it. Instantly we're forgiven and cleansed, and we're back in fellowship and walking by the Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we can be together to study your word. We're thankful for all those who are part of this ministry, not only here, but those who are listening throughout the world, those who listen via the DVDs and the way that you use uh, your word to challenge people with the truth and the way you use your word in each of our lives as you are producing the character of Christ in each one of us. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, you will help us to understand the things that we study, 
that we can focus and rightly divide your your word and that as we study these things it will be not simply a matter of academics but that we might understand that this is impacts how we think how we understand who we are in Christ that we may have a better more complete understanding of all that has been accomplished for us uh, at not only at the cross but in terms of what transpired at the instant of our salvation we pray this in Christ's name amen okay open your bibles to acts chapter 8 Acts chapter 8, just a little review, so we have context, and then we're going to get into uh, one other aspect that we started last time related to what happens when the apostles, uh, John and Peter, came to Samaria. And uh, this is important to understand because uh, it's really a refinement on some aspects of the doctrine of the receiving the Holy Spirit. Some of you have heard me teach through this before. You probably need to hear it five or six more times so that uh, you can get this clarified. Others of you have not heard me teach through this, and so this will probably challenge some of your previous understanding a little bit. Not that it's different. It's tighter. It's more refined. It is a clearer exposition of, of, uh, of what this doctrine is all about. I pointed out last time, about the fact that it is not until the two apostles, Peter and John, come uh, come down from Jerusalem to Samaria and lay hands on the uh, Samaritan converts that they receive the Holy Spirit. Prior to that, they're saved, they're justified, they uh, are... uh, uh, they are clear, they're clearly believers. They're baptized uh, in terms of believers' baptism and water baptism, but no Holy Spirit. This hasn't happened yet. So when we look at this, we see the, that they receive the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, verse 15, and uh, he falls upon them, and we're told in verse 46 that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's very clear that, they're, that the focus here is on this additional baptism that takes place subsequent to their original salvation. So the map here shows the area we're talking about in the area of Samaria. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny because the Jews didn't consider them Jews, but they're not really Gentiles. They're sort of this. Uh, they're sort of in an ethnic twilight zone, and uh, and this is why you don't get a focus on the Gentiles and Gentile salvation until we get to Acts chapter 10. So it's probably not Sebast, which is ancient Samaria, which was the plot of land that um, Omri bought from Shemer and uh, uh, Samaria and built the city of Samaria, which was a capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But it is more likely that this is Sikar, which is located uh, in the shadow of Mount Gerizim, where the Jacob's well is located, and where the um, Je- this is where Jesus went in John chapter 4 and had his conversation with the uh, woman at the well. This would, the Sebast was by this time a Roman, a, more of a Roman city, and as I pointed out when we studied this, a Roman city means that it was primarily Gentile. And so if this was where 
Uh, Philip had brought the gospel to a primarily Gentile city, then Luke would not have made an issue in, in Acts chapter 10 about Cornelius being the first Gentile uh, convert brought into the body of Christ. Now, that's important because what we're seeing here is, is uh, the historical development of the co- uh, construction, as it were, the, uh, of the body of Christ. That at the beginning in uh, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, it's in Jerusalem, it's all Jewish. And it's not until we get to Acts chapter 8 that we see another ethnic group brought in. And in order to prevent any sort of divisiveness, anybody taking any sort of ethnic pride or somehow we're better, we're different, we're distinct, the same kinds of things are going to happen with each of these ethnic groups, as I pointed out last time. So the passage we're looking at, just to review it, when the, now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem now were told earlier that when uh, this, this persecution developed after the de- de- death of Stephen, after the stoning of Stephen, that the Christians in Jerusalem fled and they were forced by the persecution to scatter. Uh, and so by forcing them to scatter, the Lord is sort of uh, imposing upon them the realities of the mandate of Acts 1-8 to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. They had not moved out yet, so God brings a little suffering on the early church to get them to move out. So suffering doesn't always mean a bad thing. It often is used to get us to focus on obedience to the Lord. So there is... Um, but we're told when the, the Christians left, the apostles stayed. So now in verse 14, uh, Luke says that when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard this, that would be all of the apostles that were there, uh, they sent Peter and John to them. Now, Pete, this is the last time we're going to see John. Uh, this is not the last time we're going to see Peter, but we're going to start with chapter uh, chapter 8, uh, seeing, or excuse me, with chapter uh, chapter nine, with the conversion of Saul. Over the next few chapters, we're going to see, and it's it's almost like Peter, then then Paul, then Peter, then Paul, then Peter, and then Paul for the rest of the uh, book of Acts. So we go through this transition as you go through the middle of Acts from Paul. I mean, excuse me, from Peter, who is the ultimate apostle to the Jews and then to Paul, who is the apostle of the Gentiles and the expansion of the church uh, westward. So they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, that is when Peter and John had come down from Jerusalem, you always go down from Jerusalem because it's high elevation, and you go up to Jerusalem. So that's, that's what's being said there. When they'd come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Same terminology used in Acts 2. For as yet he had fallen, that is, the Holy Spirit had fallen upon none of them. So they're saved, but they don't have the indwelling, the filling, the baptism, nothing to do with the Holy Spirit in terms of church age yet. And, And it's not because of any sin in the life. It's not because they didn't fully trust Jesus. It's not because they got part of the, part of, uh, the gospel, part of the grace package at justification and they had to be a second work of grace. It doesn't have anything to do with that. That was, that's, and we'll talk about that a little more tonight. That's fundamentally was the Pentecostal error was splitting the distribution of God's grace to the believer 
where you get uh, part of it at salvation and part of it at a secondary act of dedication. So you have the uh, Pentecostal two-step, and depending on the background, whether you were coming out of a holiness background or a Baptist background, Baptist got the Pentecostal two-step, and if you were coming from a holiness background, then you got the Pentecostal three-step. But it would just depend on what your background was as to how many steps there were to getting the grace, uh, the grace package from God. And the, what, the, what, what happened in the origin of uh, Pentecostal theology was that they looked at things like this and they said, see, they're saved, but they don't get the Holy Spirit until afterward. So that must be the pattern. We're not really experiencing in our life the victory over sin, all of the blessings that the Scripture seems to say that that uh, Christians should have. We don't seem to have the power of the Holy Spirit that the first century Christians had. And so maybe it's because we got part of it at justification and we haven't gotten the rest of it. So we need to have this second kind of prayer as you have here. So we need to receive the Holy Spirit like these early Christians received the Holy Spirit after their salvation. And so this, this, what this betrayed, though, was a shallow or superficial understanding of not only uh, sin, but also of salvation and justification. And as a result of that, they had a somewhat, uh, um, somewhat diluted view or anemic view of what happens at salvation and the role of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you still have people who are, at the one hand, emphasizing that we really want to have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. But on the other hand, because of their misinterpretation of Scripture, ironically, they're, they're not getting any more of it. They're actually getting less. And this is one of the things I noticed in, in many years, the first decade or so I was in the pastorate was when people come along and say, we just want to make sure we didn't miss something, they were already down going, just asking the question or approaching it that way was showed they were on the wrong road. They, they didn't really have a foundation of understanding what Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, that we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Every spiritual blessing means that there's none that got left out, uh, that you get everything at a, as a package deal. Uh, the instant of salvation, but this is a this is a transition zone. Acts is a transition book. We're moving from one dispensation, the dispensation of Israel, to a new dispensation. There's a new start. You've got sort of a um, a little bit of a of an overlap going on here because the age of the law, the Mosaic law, ends at the cross. Jesus Christ, Paul says in in Romans 11, is the end of the law. It is the goal of the law. It's all fulfilled at the cross. And so there's no longer a purpose for all of the ritual sacrifices and everything that went, went, around, went along with the Mosaic law. But you still have the temple in existence on the temple mount. You still have the function of the Levitical priesthood. You don't have any sense of contradiction going on in the mind of Peter, John, Paul, or anyone else that there's a conflict between the gospel of grace and bringing sacrifices, thanks, thanksgiving sacrifices. Paul wasn't bringing atonement sacrifices. He's bringing thanksgiving sacrifices to the temple. Either, either Paul is absolutely demented 
and a, someone who's got major contradictions in his, in his thinking, saying grace on the one side, and then he goes to take a sacrifice to the temple on the other side. Or maybe we just misunderstood this, and we have, because we, don't, we haven't understood the nature of this transition zone. And uh, as long as the temple was there, it was, uh, it was a site for worshiping God until God removed it. And that doesn't happen until A.D. 70. So from 33 to 70, you have this, this transition period that is, while you're in the church age, there are clearly things going on that will not become normative in the church age. And that one of these is that there are different things that happened in different order at salvation. As I pointed out last time, using this chart in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit initially falls only on the twelve. Now, I believe that, that this, cha- this, this is spread out as you go through on the day of Pentecost, but initially it's only on the twelve. They're already believers. It's evidenced by a noise like wind. It's like a tornado moving through. You, you can imagine what they felt like for hearing a freight train for the first time. You and I talk about, well, how do you know a, a tornado's out there? Well, we hear a freight train. If you ask them, how do you know there's a tornado out there, they would go, sounds like a mighty wind. That's that's their, all their vocabulary would allow. Then you had a visible representation of the tongues of fire. Subsequent to that, we're told they are filled with the Spirit. Different word for filling than the word we have in Ephesians 5.18. This is the word pimplami, which always precedes some sort of vocal utterance, some sort of statement or speaking. It is, it is m- related more towards some sort of inspiration uh, type talk than it is to the the uh, ongoing filling of the, by the Holy Spirit of Ephesians 5.18. So they're filled with the Spirit, and then they speak with tongues. There's no laying on of hands. Uh, baptism, water baptism, believer's baptism is only mentioned late in the events in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then in Acts 8, the passage we're in, the Samaritans believe, then they're baptized by water almost immediately, then there, there, three or four days may go by before Peter and John get there. Then Peter and John pray for them, lay hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. So there's clearly a, a distinction in time of two or three days between their justification, regeneration, and then uh, two or three days later the, they receive the Holy Spirit. But there's no mention of tongues. And if you read Pentecostal writers, Pentecostal theologians, they say, well... Everything else was there, so it would have been there also. But at this kind, that that's reading things into the text. You just can't do that. There's no justification for it. That doesn't mean it wasn't there, but if the Holy Spirit is connecting these dots all the way through, if you're really coming to the text with the view that the Holy Spirit has inspired this and he's telling us what we need to know, and he talks about tongues in Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19, and not here, if they had occurred here, why wouldn't he... Mention it, because he's what he's doing in each of these is he talks about the reception of the Holy Spirit, which is it, which is the thread that ties these together, to show that the Jews in Acts two, the Samaritans in Acts eight, the Gentiles in Acts ten, and Old Testament believers, as evidenced by John the Baptist disciples that come to Paul in, in Ephesus in Acts chapter nineteen, that these all 
come into the same body of Christ on the foundation of apostolic authority. There is only one apostolic foundation and one apostolic uh, uh, leadership. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians uh, 2.12, that the apostles and prophets lay the foundation of the church. And so the Holy Spirit ties these together, and what he says is it's important to pay attention to what he says and what he leaves out. So there's no mention of speaking in tongues, and I said that last week that this is related to the fact that tongues was designed to be a sign, not what was said. I, I tell you, I have sat down with people and repeated that 25 times, and they don't hear it. Because for so long people have thought that the purpose of tongues is to communicate the gospel. But that's not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14. It's not what is being said. It is that divine revelation and content is not being said in Hebrew. And because it's not being said in Hebrew and it's being said in a Gentile language and it's a result of the Holy Spirit, it's a sign of judgment on Israel. Because up to this point, every time God revealed himself uh, to the Jews and reveals uh, his word, it's always in Hebrew through uh, the Hebrew prophets. But now it's going to be in Gentile languages. And we, I pointed out the passages in Isaiah chapter 28, uh, 14, talking about the fact that, that they would hear with stammering lips and stuttering uh, tongues and that they would hear from... Uh, foreign uh, foreign languages, and that that was a fulfillment of what had been predicted in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30 as a sign of judgment on the nation for that the fifth cycle of discipline was there and that they were under God's judgment. And so all of this connects, and so it wasn't, the tongues wasn't there to, to evangelize. I'm not saying that, that didn't happen, but that wasn't its purpose. Uh, there were a lot of things that may have secondary, tertiary uh, uh, consequences, but the purpose of tongues was that when Jews heard the gospel and, and heard revelation being given in Gentile languages, they should have known that this is a sign for us that judgment's coming and we need to repent. So there's no tongues there because the Samaritans are, because of their sort of half-breed, sort of ethnic, no-man's-land situation. But uh, it was important with the Gentiles. Uh, in Acts 10, we'll see Peter comes uh, to the Gentiles in Caesarea. They believe while he's teaching the gospel. And while that happens, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and pours out upon them language that's used in other passages related to the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, they, they then speak in tongues, in languages, human languages, legitimate human languages, and they praise God, and then they were baptized by water. So there's a different order in the events, and there's no laying on of hands. In Acts 19, Paul came to Ephesus. They, they were already Old Testament saints, these, these disciples of John the Baptist. Now, that's a really interesting thing that you can overthink, so I'm going to warn you about that, because you have believers who you didn't have email, you didn't have Facebook and Twitter and MySpace and all these other things. You didn't have Skype and automatic uh, uh, video, FaceTime, all this instant communication like we do today. And if Jesus died in Jerusalem in, on April the 3rd of AD 33, and you lived in, and you were an Old Testament saint living in 
Macedonia, and you died between 33 and 50 when Paul got there, you're an Old Testament believer because the gospel hadn't gotten to you yet. You didn't just automatically become a New Testament church-age believer just because of a calendar date. Chew on that for a while. And that's what happens. Here are these Old Testament saints, disciples of John the Baptist, who are clearly presented in the text as old as saints, as Old Testament saints, but they haven't uh, heard anything about Jesus. They just heard what John the Baptist mentioned uh, message was, and they believed that. So that makes them Old Testament believers, but they're in transition. So if you don't understand transition in Acts, you'll never understand the book. You'll just end up going, this is really weird. And it's different because you're in a transition event. So that's why you make it, people have made mistakes going to Acts as a foundation for doctrine. It's not a foundation for doctrine unless it's confirmed clearly through what is said later in the epistles because we're dealing with how God is transitioning from the Old Testament dispensation of Israel to the New Testament, uh, to the church age dispensation, which is the present age. Okay, so I want to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit this evening. And the mechanics, this is really important. You may not think it's so important, but it's always important for us to make sure we clearly understand what the Word of God says about whatever it talks about. So first of all, we have to understand that the baptism of the Holy Spirit did not occur in the Old Testament at all. Baptism is a word that has a literal meaning and it has a figurative connotation. Now, the literal meaning is to dip or plunge or immerse. And it was used in a lot of different ways, but it had a symbolic significance. So that in the, for example, in the ancient Greek army, classical, uh, classical Attica, if you were a trained soldier and you finished boot camp, you would take your sword or your spear and you would dip it, baptize it, in a bucket of, of pig's blood. That was an identification of your weapon with death, with violence, and it meant that you were now, you'd gone through your initiation stage and you were now prepared to go be a soldier. And so it had a figurative significance of identification, but a literal meaning of dip, plunge, or immerse. So it doesn't mean that, um, it doesn't mean that it that the literal is ignored. The literal plunging or immersion, which is what occurred in the baptism of John, of John the Baptist and water baptism for believers baptism, is to teach the principle of identification with the message of either John or with the message of the of the gospel. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit didn't occur in the Old Testament because it's an identification, as we'll see with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Since Jesus had not died, been buried, or resurrected, then there could be no identification with that. The second point is that the first baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs on the day of Pentecost in about 33 A.D. Now, it is is indicated by non-technical language such as the 
uh, receiving of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that is that there are numerous ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the church-age believer. And none of those transpired prior to uh, the day of Pentecost. And so just the reception of the Holy Spirit includes indwelling, filling, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the reception of uh, being given spiritual gifts, and all of this rela- happened instantly at, at, uh, on the day of Pentecost, first to the apostles and then to, uh, then to other believers. Now, this doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit has become a controversial doctrine in modern times because of the teaching of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. Now, I'm not going to go into a big history of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, but it's important to understand these terms because these are technically defined terms. A Pentecostal is the original movement, and Pentecostal meant that that uh, you believe that the that there was a work of grace after salvation. It's either the second or third step, but there's a work of grace after salvation that is identified by speaking in languages, and that act is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you got that then you left your denomination, you quit being a Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Lutheran, whatever, and you went off and you joined a distinct Pentecostal denomination, such as the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal Church in America, and any number of others, Church of God, not of, let me see, it's Church of God of Cleveland, Tennessee, Church of God of Anderson, Indiana, was something uh, different. And it gets, there's a lot of them, so it's uh, because they popped up in a lot of different places. So uh, the charismatic movement, though, doesn't begin until Dennis Bennett, the rector of, uh, of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, has this experience and s- believes he's speaking in tongues in 1957, but he didn't leave the Episcopal Church. They kept him in, and so now you have people who have the same view that you get a second work of grace that's identified as a baptism of the Holy Spirit, necessarily evidenced by speaking in tongues, and but you don't leave your denomination, you stay there. So at that point you had uh, charismatic, uh, Baptists, Methodists, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, whatever. And that became known as the charismatic movement. And then uh, by the time you get into the 70s, things change. You get what they call the third wave, which was the vineyard movement. But in there, you also get this other thing that happens called the word of faith movement or the healing movements. This is Oral Roberts and a number of others. And they begin to also leave their denominations, their Pentecostal denominations. But why? Because they're basically teaching teaching doctrines that were declared, rightly so, declared heretical by those Pentecostal denominations and the Assemblies of God, uh, for one, in the late 40s and early 50s. And so this is what happens. Those of you who kind of lived through this period know that, that if you were going to an independent Bible church in the 60s and somebody asked you, where are you going to church? And you said you were going to Umpty Dump Church. And they said, hmm, what kind of church is that? You'd say, well, it's non-denominational. But sometime, uh, if you had any 
sense of what was happening at all, you realize that by the 80, late 80s or 90s, if you said non-denominational, that suddenly had become come to mean charismatic. You didn't know what happened, but what happened was all these people like like Oral Roberts, the Word of Faith movement, Robert Tilton, um, Lakewood, which was, I think it was Baptist, and then it became kind of independent, but it was independent. All these churches became non-denominational because they were teaching this heresy about about Jesus and prosperity theology, and they were kicked out of their Pentecostal denominations, so they went independent and non-denominational. So now that that sort of helps you understand why all of a sudden non-denominational doesn't really mean what we are. It means what some of these huge charismatic word of faith type churches are. So that's just your overview of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. But they, up until the third wave, they had this problem with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in classic Pentecostal charismatic theology, now this is important to understand, there are Two works that happen. There's something that happens at salvation, and there's something that happens after after salvation. And if they're challenged biblically, we talk about what Jesus, what John the Baptist said about Jesus, that Jesus would baptize by the Spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says that we've all been baptized by one Spirit. Now, the way... The English translated 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it makes it look like the Spirit does the baptizing. So in Pentecostal theology, you had a baptism that Jesus did that was predicted by John, and then you had this other baptism that Paul talks about. So they really have two different baptisms. And that's that's the um, fourth point I'm making is that the problem derives from the English translation in the King James Version, because what you have is in Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, in the Greek text of Matthew 3.11, the preposition translated with is the Greek preposition in, E-N. In, pneumat- in hudity for water, in pneumity for uh, the Holy Spirit. But it's translated with the English preposition with. But then you get to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, and we read, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. The trouble is the Greek's the same in both passages. But if you're, you don't know Greek, it looks like it's by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, and it's with the Spirit in the Gospels, and that's two different things. So putting this up on the screen for you, Matthew 3.11 uses this phrase, in numity, which is just the preposition in, which always takes or governs the dative case, and it really expresses instrumentality. What did John the Baptist use to I, to baptize or to identify his converts with his message. He, the instrument that he used was water. What, is, what instrument is Jesus going to use? He's going to use the Holy Spirit. You have to keep that parallel going on between water 
and the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, for, Paul says, for by one Spirit, but look, it's the exact same Greek phrase. The trouble is you had one person in translating the King James and the Gospels, you had somebody else translating in the Pauline epistles, and the person in the Gospels had a likeness for the English preposition with, and the translator of, of 1 Corinthians liked the preposition English preposition by, and so they translated uh, the same Greek phrase two different ways. And so people untutored in Greek looked at this and went, oh, we have two different baptisms. Now, this is the problem with Pentecostal charismatic theology. It ends up with two different baptisms of the Holy Spirit, one with, with the Holy Spirit at salvation and another one by the Holy Spirit at or after salvation. Now, you're sitting out there thinking, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, it has a lot to do with us, and I'll get to it in just a minute because the same problem of two baptisms leaked into uh, Dallas Seminary theology, Bible Church theology, and how many, many non-charismatics taught this in a, a, a little bit different way. So in 1 Corinthians uh, 12.13, we have this phrase, for by one spirit. And I always translate it by means of one spirit because that gets across this idea of instrumentality. It is by means of, of the Holy Spirit. We're all baptized into one body, and Paul here uses uh, the phrase, uh, the, the verb, baptizo, it's in the aorist tense, which indicates he's viewing it as completely in the past. But he's talking, uh, you trace the use of this first-person plural pronoun all the way through 1 Corinthians from the beginning to the end. He's talking about himself and everybody in the Corinthian church, all those nasty, carnal Corinthians who were sleeping with their incestuously with their stepmothers, who were uh, bringing lawsuits against other other uh, believers, who were doing all sorts of horrible things. Um, Paul includes them all, and he says, "We were all baptized into one body, past tense." So it's clear that First Corinthians twelve thirteen is talking about something that applies to anyone and everyone who is a who is a believer. They've all been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the next thing that we see here is uh, the arrow kind of starts at the wrong word. It should go over to into is this verb that's our preposition is translated into. It's the Greek preposition E-I-S that should be translated something like eighth or pronounced something like ace, and it indicates the direction or goal of something. Now, the point that I'm making here is that you have a sort of a formula statement. You have a verb that tells you the kind of action. You have another statement that tells you the instrument used to accomplish the action, and that's indicated by that in clause. And then you have another preposition that indicates the future goal or state that's the end result of this action of baptism. Now, we get messed up in English because in English, you handle a passive verb a little differently. Now, if you look at the lower left, you see that baptizo is an aorist passive indicative. Now, we're just going to go back and have a little basic grammar. 
An active voice verb means that the subject performs the action of the verb. All right? John hit the ball with or by means of the bat. So the verb here is the verb hit. John is the grammatical subject of the verb. So the active voice, the subject, that is John, performs the action of hitting the ball. Now, the grammatical direct object of the verb receives the action of the verb. So John is this grammatical subject, and the ball is the uh, grammatical object that receives the action of, of, the, uh, of the verb. Now, we have all this laid out. John hit the ball with, which expresses the instrument of how he hit the ball. But if we turn it around and we change the active voice verb to a passive voice verb, we have to change the way where we put the subject and the object. If we reverse the sentence, instead of saying, John hit the ball with the bat, we now say the ball was hit uh, with or by the bat. I left John out for a reason. We'll get, get him in there in a minute. The ball is now the grammatical subject, but it but it receives the action of the passive voice verb. Uh, with or by the bat still expresses the uh, instrument. So was hit is now a passive voice. The subject receives the action of the verb. So when we change that over, now watch this. This is really important. When we say that the ball was hit by John, John is no longer the grammatical subject of the verb but he's still the one who performs the action. So grammatically, this is called being the agent. He's the agent who performs the action, but in a passive voice construction, he's not the grammatical subject. So we say the ball is now the subject, was hit is a passive verb, by John. Notice in English you use the preposition by to express the, the, the agent who performs the action of the verb. And you also can use by to express the instrument. Isn't that confusing? English is a screwy language. Okay? The, the first by is not the same as the second by. This is a problem we get, get into in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So if we were to put this in Greek, uh, we would expect, um, the ball was hit by, by John, uh, except I have that reversed. Actually, the hoopa should be under, those, those prepositions are wrong. The, the, the performer, the agent in Greek, if it's a passive verb, is always going to be indicated by the hoopa. It's technical. If Greek is, Greek's not going to let you miss who performs the, who the agent of action is. It's always going to be expressed by the preposition hoopa, not by an in. In tells you what he hit it with. Okay? So when we get into 1 Corinthians 12.13, and 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, for by one spirit, it doesn't say hupa. That would indicate that the spirit then performs the action of baptism. It says the same thing that it had in Matthew. John said, the one who comes after me will baptize you in numity by the Spirit. It's in every gospel. It's in Acts chapter 1. 
enumity. It's technical. It indicates the instrument used to bring about the baptism. We get into 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It doesn't say hoopah because it's not telling us that the Spirit does the baptizing. It doesn't tell us who does the baptizing because that's not Paul's point. He leaves the agent out of his statement in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 because he's emphasizing the fact that it's all been accomplished by the Spirit because it's this action of the, uh, uh, this use of the Holy Spirit in identifying us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection that is the foundation of the unity of the body of Christ. It happens with the Jews, then the Samaritans, then the, uh, then the Gentiles, and then with the uh, uh, disciples of John the Baptist. So that this is why Paul can say there is one body. There's not four bodies. There's not four distinct Pentecosts. There's not four distinct... There's one event, and it's all at the hands of the apostles showing that there's only one body. So my fifth point is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is first prophesied by John the Baptist, the Incarnation, and Jesus Christ states it almost identically in Acts 1.5. And in each of those instances... This baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, is all future. In Acts 1, Jesus says, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. By the time we get to Acts chapter 8, it's already happened. So when does it happen? It happens in Acts chapter 2. Now, in Matthew, the subject of the active voice verb is Jesus Christ. He's the one who's going to perform the action. John said, the one who comes after me he will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. Who performs the action? Jesus does. Who does he use to perform the action? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is viewed grammatically as an instrument, even though he's a person. Matthew 3.11 states, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He, the subject, shall baptize you by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. The fire is a future judgment. So, breaking it down grammatically, as for me, Paul, uh, John, John the Baptist says, I baptize you. It's an active voice verb. John performs the action, and he does it with water. Now, this is really important. To understand what Jesus does with the Holy Spirit, we have to understand what John the Baptist did with the water. If you don't understand with what John the Baptist did with the water, because that's the literal uh, demonstration, that's the visual training aid to understand something that happens in the invisible spiritual realm. So we have to understand that. What does John do? John standing there at the um, on the Jordan River. Those of us who are going to Israel next week, we're going to go to the site. It's been open the last uh, year and a half. Uh, it was closed for many years because it's in a part of an IDF training operation ground right on the Jordan River, which is the border, border with Jordan. But John ta- would take this person who said, okay, I'm, I'm repenting, I'm changing my mind, and I'm getting away from the legalism of the law and turning to grace. I realize that I have to turn to God or the kingdom won't come. And so John takes this person and he plunges them or immerses them into the water and so he's using the water as a, it's a literal water, but it's a symbol or picture of the total cleansing of this person from sin. 
which is how water is used many times in the, in the Old Testament. And then when he comes up out of the water, he's in a new state, and that's indicated by that preposition ace, and this new state is he is in a state of repentance. So he's gone from an old state of being non-repentant to being cleansed of sin, symbolized by being plunged into the water, and then he comes out the other side, and he is identified in a new state. So when, when John says, I baptize you with water or by means of water, it is for the purpose, the end goal of repentance, the new state. Now, he compares that to what Jesus is going to do. He says, the one who comes after me will baptize you. He will baptize you, future tense. It didn't happen during the incarnation. It's future tense. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, just as John baptized with water. So the role of the Holy Spirit is analogous to the role of the water. What was the role of the water? To cleanse ceremonially, ritually from sin. What is the Holy Spirit going to do at the instant of salvation? He cleanses us positionally of all sin. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this picture of an identification that takes place that where the Holy Spirit is used in the same way that water was used by John the Baptist to bring about this, this uh, cleansing this, and into this new, this new state. So the preposition in here, what's at the bottom of this uh, chart, expresses means or instrument, and the preposition ace, which is in green, expresses the goal or direction or the new state. Uh, just like that, that, re, that recruit the soldier who finishes boot camp goes from being an, uh, 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 just a rookie uh, trainee. When he finishes and graduates, there's a symbolic action that indicates now he is blooded, he's ready, ready to go to, into battle. So the grammatical subject then becomes, in a passive voice construction, becomes the, is the agent of action. So in Acts 1.5, Jesus said, For John baptized, past tense, active voice verb, John did the, did the baptizing, with or by means of water. But then Jesus said, You will be baptized, future tense, and it's passive. You will be baptized, somebody's going to do it to you, with the Holy Spirit. But the Holy, with the Holy Spirit uses a preposition in, which indicates... What? Instrument. Not the one who's going to do it. If it's the one who's going to do it, then John predicted that Jesus would do it, and now Jesus is saying, no, the Holy Spirit's going to do it. Oops. So you've got to keep consistent here. Jesus always does the baptism, whether he stated or not, and the Holy Spirit's role is always expressed by this in prepositional phrase. It keeps it very clear, very simple. 1 Corinthians 10.2 is another baptismal statement in, in Corinthians, talking about the baptism of the uh, Israelites. It's a dry baptism. The ones who got wet died. Those were the Pharaoh's soldiers. All were baptized, passive voice, all were baptized into Moses. That's this new state in or by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. So the, the, the agent that affected their identification with Moses is the cloud and the water, which is, which is a reference to the pillar of fire, the cloud, and the Red Sea. 
that is going through the Red Sea following the pillar of the cloud has identified the Israelites with Moses. So we get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, states for by one spirit, still in pneumatic. It's got to express the, the means, not the one who performs the action. Just that we're not told who's performing the action here. Uh, one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Uh, whether Jew or Greek, slaves or free, we we're all made to drink of one, one, uh, made to drink of one spirit. That's the same word related to being poured out that we have here in, in uh, Acts chapter 8. So in terms of the mechanics, uh, Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with Christ, just as John the Baptist used water to identify the believer with repentance. So it's this identification thing that is so important. So I got a little chart here on the phrase of the, the word by means of the Spirit, and <clears throat> John the Baptist in Matthew three eleven, the means is water. The end goal is repentance. Jesus in Matthew 11 is predicted to do it by the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't say what the end goal is. There's no ace clause. My point is that even though you have these different parts of the formula, they don't, they're not all stated every time there's a reference to it. It was unnecessary. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 too, it doesn't say who's performing the baptism. It is, uh, it's done, it's understood probably to be God, but it's not stated. It's done by means of the uh, cloud and the sea into Moses. And then in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen again, the uh, agent of the action is not stated. Uh, in numity is stated the means and into one body. And so we see this, this formula. It's, it's just great how Scripture comes together. God is so precise. He doesn't violate this formula at any time. Every time you have these sta- baptismal statements, they all parallel in terms of their use of these prepositions, and it's uh, very, very clear of what's going on. So we have the performer of the action, John the Baptist, uses water to identify the person with repentance. In parallel, Jesus Christ uses uh, uses the Holy Spirit to identify the person with himself in terms of his death, burial, and resurrection. So when we understand this and translate correctly that we're baptized by means of the Spirit, it puts the emphasis on the Holy Spirit's use as means. He doesn't do the the baptizing work. It is Jesus who does it, and there's only one baptism. The baptism that John predicted in Matthew 3.11, the baptism that Jesus predicted in Acts 1.5 is the same baptism Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12.13. But John Walver, Charles Ryrie, uh, I don't know how many other dispensational teachers for many years talked about the baptism in the Gospels is talking about Jesus doing it, but when you get over to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's the Holy Spirit doing it. But it violates the Greek. Greek never expresses the agent of uh, the performer of the action in a passive construction with an in preposition. And so they ended up 
although they never talked about it this way. In effect, they're ending up with two different baptisms because they have Jesus doing it in John's statements and the Holy Spirit doing it in the way they interpreted 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But, but they were right theologically in that they argued that there was only one, one of these spirit baptism events and that happened at salvation. Where I'm clarifying this is showing you that this terminology goes consistently through all these passages. It is Jesus who does it. He uses the Holy Spirit to do it. And the end result is that we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are all united in this universal body of Christ. This is the eighth point. Unification among believers is achieved by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, positionally, we are all one in Christ. So that in Ephesians 4, 5, Paul says there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. And the baptism he's talking about there isn't water baptism. It is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit because that's what makes us one body in Christ. So this has implications such as in Galatians 3, 23 to 25, and we've covered this many times recently in, Col- in the Colossian series, is that uh, it doesn't mean that ethnic distinction, gender distinction, social distinctions are eradicated, but they're no longer relevant in terms of the individual believer's relationship to God as they were under the Mosaic law when only free Jewish males could enter into the uh, temple to worship God. The Gentiles and the women had to stay in the outer, outer courtyard. And in that verbiage, Paul says, for all of you who were baptized or identified into Christ, that's that phrase, ace again, that's that goal, were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's that clothing imagery I spent a lot of time talking about in Colossians. And the result is that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. See, you, there aren't, in terms of the body of Christ, there aren't these distinctions. There are in terms of roles, but not in terms of our personal relationship to God. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit provides a retroactive, that means it goes back, uh, retroactive identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ which is the basis then of the victory over the sin nature, Romans 6, 3 through 5. Now, we're going to hit this again when we get into Romans 6, and we're almost there on Thursday nights. Now, that's why I wanted to go back and review this again. This is, it relates to what we're studying Colossians on Sunday morning. It relates to where we are in, in Romans 6. This is the foundation because of the reality of this identification. We're new creatures in Christ and we are then expected to live according to an entirely uh, entirely new standard. So point 11, then the baptism of the Holy Spirit begins the church age, and this distinguishes it from all previous ages. Point number 12, it's also the basis for positional truth, that is our identification with Christ, which then becomes the foundation for these uh, challenges or exhortations to live the spiritual life. Thirteen, it's not an experience of any kind. You can't look back at it and say, oh, I felt it. No, you didn't. You didn't even know what it was until you went back and studied the Scripture and the revelation of God tells you about it. 
So in the bottom line is that the baptism of the, by the Holy Spirit places us in Christ as a new creature, new status in his body, and that is what is being formed. And it is done by Christ does it using the Holy Spirit as the means of cleansing and uh, identification. So I'll just stop there because pretty much covered uh, the topic. I, does anybody have any questions on this? I want to make sure I really got this covered clearly. I don't do this about every three or four years and crank down on the details, but every now and then we need to go over it and maybe it'll sort of sink in a little more uh, and a little better understanding of this. Okay, nobody has any questions? Either I can... Judy? With fire. Oh, with fire. That's, 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 refusing, that's referring to judgment that comes in the tribulation period by means of fire. Fire is used figuratively for divine judgment. So that's yet future. Okay, good question. Greg? Does the water baptism still depict the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, it depicts positional truth. Because this is such an abstract doctrine. It It's non-experiential. It happens in this... In this, uh, in this sphere where we don't see it, we don't understand it, we don't experience it. So water baptism is the means for teaching in a very concrete way what has happened in, in the spiritual dimension at the instant of salvation. That with, with the going into the water is a picture of identification with Christ in his death and burial, and coming out is into a new state, a new identification. You are now have been identified with Christ and you're positionally free from sin. So. Well, that's okay. It's not necessary for salvation. It's like the Lord's table. It is a training aid to teach abstract doctrine. Because God knows that most of us are pretty dense and pretty dumb, and it takes us about 100 hours of studying something before we finally go, oh, is that what grace is? And even then we blow it the next day. So I won't tell any personal stories on anybody else, but that's what happens. It's slow. But, but that imagery, and every time we see a baptism, it's just like when you go to a marriage, you go to a wedding. What does that do? It reminds you of the vows that you've taken in your wedding. And it's the same thing. Every time you see somebody get baptized, it's a reminder to all of us of what happened at the instant we trusted Christ as salvation. We're only supposed to get baptized one time. Some people do it now and then as sort of memorials or remembrances of something. They don't think it's any, the second or third or any point, point, but maybe they've reached another point in their life. And I don't, you know, if somebody does that, that's that's fine. I'm not going to make an issue out of that. I've had that happen when I've gone to Israel, and people said, oh, this is great. I'd like to be baptized over here in Israel. Great, that's fine. I'm... But it's, if, you've, if you haven't been baptized, there's a command in Scripture to be baptized. Uh, it's, it's not say, well, you know, if you feel like it or if you want to or if you get the right opportunity, then you ought to be baptized. It's, it's, it's mandated. Why? Because it's a way of what? What are we supposed to do? Encourage and teach and, and admonish everybody else in the body of Christ. And so it's a way that people are encouraged because they hear our testimony, they know what went on in our life, and so uh, that's an encouragement 
uh, to other believers. And it's a reminder to all of us of what happened, in, what has happened to us in positional truth and all that Christ has given us and how the bondage to sin was absolutely finally broken at the instant we trusted Christ as Savior. And now we're a new creature in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to focus on this uh, very important critical doctrine and to try to clarify it a little bit in our understanding and thinking so that we can just appreciate even more all that we have been given, all that's been provided for us as new creatures in Christ and just what that means. Father, we pray that you would help us to think this through and have a greater understanding of these important identification doctrines in Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.